0: It is a good thing to remind ourselves of the Lord and His coming, and uh, we do that as we study, in particular, this book of the Bible. If you've not been with us for a little bit, just want to remind you where we are, what we've been doing. We've been studying through the last book of our Bible. I invite you then to take your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation. We're going to consider the passage that Brother Dave read this morning, Revelation 3, not 7, Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7, and by God's grace, we'll close out this letter to the church of Philadelphia. Now, as we have been going through these letters to the seven churches, these were seven literal churches that were in Asia. These are not the only churches that were there, but Jesus had a letter for seven, and they were specialized for each one of those bodies, each one of those local churches, However, each of these letters ends with the same refrain. Each one of them ends, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Even though each letter is written to an individual church, it's meant to be for the benefit of all the churches. In the course of the study, I have been trying to do my best to make sure that as we go through each one of these letters, we get the sense that There's something here for us. It's often the case that folks will identify with a particular church. And I often think that in the circles we are in, our circles often associate with the church of Ephesus because of what is said to that church. But every church is meant to be of a benefit to us. And it's been very unique personally to consider this letter to the church of Philadelphia. I remember when I began studying these seven letters to the seven churches, and I was going through different sermons on these. And one pastor began the series on the church at Ephesus by saying that God has churches in big cities. And it it threw me off. I mean, I, I know exactly where he got his point from. Ephesus had at least a quarter million people a huge city probably the church was a huge church and given his church the size of his church i'm certain that just the mere size of that church spoke to him spoke to his congregation because god does have big churches like the church at ephesus and i guess i appreciate that more now that i've come to this church at philadelphia this is a small church and most churches, most churches are small churches, 50 below. That's normal, is to be a small church. And, and I think that there's a lot here that we, can, that we can harvest for ourselves. Not to say that any of these letters is, is, is better than the other ones or is, is more necessary for us than the other ones, but I think this one in particular speaks to us because there are challenges that come from being a church like the Church of Philadelphia. I have to wonder, and I I was wondering, hopefully with a little bit of sanctified imagination this morning, no one was surprised when when Jesus begins to write these letters and he writes to the Church of Ephesus. Everyone knew about Ephesus. Perhaps there were people who on this side of things, on this side of reading the, church, the letter to the church at Sardis, we're surprised that Jesus even wrote them a letter because they were dead. Why would Jesus write a letter to that church? They're dead. But I have to wonder if there was someone reading these letters, and it says to the church Philadelphia, and they said, There's a church in Philadelphia? Really? I never knew that. Never heard of them. I mean, they were so small, so insignificant, that they hardly knew who they were. We'd say because we have cars, you'd drive right by and never notice. This is a small church, but it's a church that um, I think it really, it really should be of encouragement to us because Christ has a lot of encouraging words to this church. And uh, I tried, I really tried last week to, to bring us into uh, this setting, and I will, by God's grace, try to do so again. Because there's, there's a lot of encouragement that God has for us. So this morning, my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's consider a steadfast church. Not only a small church, but a steadfast church. Let's pray. Father, as we get to open your word, we pray that it would, it would be like honey to us. It would be sweet to our souls. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've read the Bible before, you've probably read through the Gospels. You've probably read the Gospel of Matthew, the first Gospel that begins our New Testament. And perhaps then you've read the parable of the talents. Now these talents are not skills. These talents are rather like dollar bills, as we would understand it. The parable unfolds the fact that various servants are, giving, are given various amounts. And then these servants make business transactions. And then later on, the master returns and receives a business report from each one of his servants. And two of the servants have doubled their money. But one did nothing but dig a hole and hide the money in the ground. And this last servant was worthless. But the first two were good and faithful, and they were rewarded. And in part, such is the story of the church in Philadelphia in Asia Minor from the first century. No, I'm not saying that Judgment Day had come where we actually have a final accounting of what has taken place, but it's like we have a progress report of sorts that's given here. And if we can use our our sanctified imagination, the second servant, the one who didn't receive as much, he received his progress report. This is the church of Philadelphia, the one with a little strength, the small church. It's not like the great church of Ephesus that was pastored by some who wrote Scripture, some very recipients of the Scripture. Perhaps the Apostle John had ministered to this church briefly or from afar, but this church was the one of Philadelphia, small church, like a small flame flickering for the gospel's sake. What kind of progress report would you expect to find for this small church? Well, as we studied last week, there wasn't anything negative about them. Nothing wrong. That wasn't the case for Ephesus, the vigilant church. That wasn't the case for a good works galore church over at Thyatira. But what ought to be more striking than the absence of correction is the abundance of Christ. Christ referred to himself more in this letter than any other letter. And given that this is an epistle, the nature of this book of Revelation, it is a a book of prophecy but written in the form of of an epistle, this small church at at Philadelphia must have needed to hear about Christ. They needed to hear about him, who he is, what he has, what he has done how he is disposed towards them, what he will do for them, what they need to do for him. These words from Christ must have fell upon them like welcome grain on the farmer's fields. It's just what they needed so that they would be steadfast, because that's what Jesus desires in the church. He wants the church to be steadfast. Now, last week, I gave us our 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 main point, that Christ affirms faithfulness in the church. And I said there are five points to that. Last week we covered three of those points. Today we'll cover the remaining two. Last week we learned that Christ cheered the church at Philadelphia by describing his authority, by assuring them of what they had, and by validating their faithfulness. He told them who he is, what he has, how he related to them, and how they'd been faithful to him. And that was to cheer the church on. And so, from those points, we learned that we ought to be emboldened by his authority. We ought to be encouraged by his assurances. We ought to be reassured by his acknowledgments. That's what we learned last week. Today, let's be motivated by his assurances and steadied by his assignment. Motivated by his assurances, steadied by his assignment. So... I think of it as our fourth point of the day, if we just put along with last week. This is where we learn that Christ wants our church to be motivated by his assurances. Christ wants us to be motivated by his assurances, and I think you're a bit confused, or you ought to be, because last week I talked about Christ's assurances, and now I'm talking about them again. So why should we talk about assurances twice? Obviously, there's a reason. The reason why I'm talking about them again is Christ assured them of what they had last time we were together. He told the church of Philadelphia what they had. And now he's going to assure them of what they would have. Before he told them they, would have, they had an open door. He had set there, his love upon them. Now his focus shifts to the future. So instead of assuring them of what is, he gives them assurances of what would be. So Christ cheered the church at Philadelphia by promising to them what they would have. So as we go through the rest of this letter, we're going to search out the I wills, what Christ promises to do in this letter. And first, we see in verse 9 that Christ is going to motivate us by promising reversal. Christ promised the church in Philadelphia vindication from their enemies. Look at verse 9. Christ says to the church, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. They will learn that I have loved you. Now, this promise seems sacrilegious. How is it possible that Christ is causing people to worship the church, to bow down at their feet? Now there are some religions, even supposed Christian groups that make people out to be gods who are that they are worthy of worship, but the Bible is extremely clear on this matter that there is only one living and true God who is worthy of worship. Revelation 19:4 asserts this or 15:4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you. That's who ought to be worshiped, but we still have the plain statement of 3 9 here. But as you look in the margin of your Bible at your cross references, you'll see references to the book of Isaiah. And as we read through these cross references, we realize that this is a promise of reversal. So as you look at your margin, you see three references. And each one of these explain how one group is going to come and bow to another. And the irony in Isaiah is it's the Gentiles who oppose. And oppress the Jews who are going to come and bow before the Jews. But when we get to Revelation 3, it's reversed. It's professing Jews who are going to bow. But the, but the big irony of the Old Testament text compared to this is not so much the people. It's something else. The point isn't the reversal of the persons. It's the reversal of the perspective. I want you to listen as I read the refrain of the Isaiah passages, the cross-references, Isaiah forty-five 14, they'll bow and they will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. So the nations are going to come to the realization of who the true God is. The worthless gods that they worshipped will mean nothing at that point because they'll realize there's only one God. Isaiah 49, 23, they bow, and then the Bible says, Then you will know that I am the Lord, But those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. The point is, there is shame from being oppressed by other people. But one day, that oppression will vanish. Isaiah 60, verse 14, the people... Come and bow, and they'll call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So the nations are one day going to come, and they're going to call them the people of God. Now let's go to Revelation 3.9. They're going to bow and see what it says at the end. They will learn that I have loved you. That's the reversal of perspective. For the one, there's going to be a realization. For the other, there's going to be a vindication. Let's think about this from the setting of the Philadelphian church. There are professing Jews who claim to be the people of God. They have excluded the local Christians because those people go as far as to believe that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah. They deny that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God to save people from their sin. And, of course, that kind of idea is of the devil, is of Satan. He's ultimately behind that kind of thinking. But one day, they'll learn the truth, that Jesus is the true Messiah, and these Christians are the recipients of his love. And that's no small promise to this small church. We can readily understand the difficulty that comes from being marginalized, as this church was, especially for our Christian beliefs. Just take one, for example, that's in the headlines. If you hold to Jesus' view of gender, of male and female, people think you're extreme. It is difficult to be pigeonholed as an extremist because you believe the Bible. Yet Christ's promise is that opposition will one day become educated in the truth. Those who pursued other gods will finally understand the church's Christ is the only true God. And their act of bowing is not one of sacrilege, as if the church is God. That's not the case. Their act of bowing is not one of subjection, as if the church is superior. But their act of bowing is their acknowledgement that the church's Christ is the holy and true God. And some people are going to do that against their wills, Philippians 2. And other people are going to mourn and repent and accept Christ, as the prophet Zechariah talks about. But before we move on to the next promise that... Jesus gives us in this passage, I want to apply this in two ways. First, given that one day people will learn who Jesus Christ truly is, I need to press upon your hearts, do you today recognize Jesus Christ to be Lord of all? Because one day that will be the realization, and you need to have that realization today to be on the right side of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to have Him save you from your sin. Secondly, for those of you who already recognize Christ as Lord, be encouraged that when you face difficulty, when you face naysayers, when you face pushback because you hold the truth of God's Word, one day that will change. It is hard when people attack you, when they say, you're a know-it-all, you're holier than thou. Indeed, we don't know it all, and indeed, we aren't holier than thou. What we do know is this, we are great sinners, and Christ is a great Savior. We know our sin, and we know that Christ is our only way to find forgiveness of sin, because He paid for all of our sin. That's our only hope. That's what we know. So be encouraged. Even though right now things aren't reversed and it's hard. One day it will be reversed. Let's move on to another promise that's really a lot simpler to understand. But strangely enough is the source of a great amount of controversy within Christendom. And if we move on to verse 10 we'll find that Christ is going to motivate us by promising us protection. Christ promised the church at Philadelphia deliverance from the hour of trial. Let's read it together. Revelation 3.10 Because you have kept My word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. The logic of this promise is quite simple. Because you have kept my word, I will keep you from trying time. That's it. You say, what is this time like? Well, we're going to study that in the course of our series, but that's chapter 6 through 16. It all begins in heaven, chapters 4 and 5, where Christ is going to take a seven-sealed scroll. He's, begin to, he's going to begin to open it and enact judgment upon the earth. But turn forward a page to chapter 6, and let's do a quick, just a quick flyover of what this time is like. If you look at your Bibles, Revelation 6, verse 12, you see that when the sixth scroll is opened, there's an earthquake. The Bible says that the sun becomes black, the moon like blood, the stars fall, from the, or fall to the earth, every mountain and island is removed. Now, obviously, everyone on earth is affected by these kinds of changes. It's not like the plagues of Egypt, where the land of Goshen was at times exempt from the plague. Matthew 24, 21 says, For there will be great tribulation, such as has never been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. This, what's talked about here, is a time that is the worst ever to be, ever that will be. The disasters of this trying time happen all over the globe. That's what it means when it says it's a time about to come upon the whole inhabited earth. It's not the standard word for cosmos there, for world. As one talks about the inhabited world, where people are. The point is, where the people are, that's where the wrath of the Lamb is going to come. Well, why? The reason is given to us, to try those who dwell on the earth. This time will test the unbelievers of the earth. The reason I say unbelievers is because each time... This phrase comes up in the book of Revelation, those who dwell on the earth, it always refers to unbelievers. Not going to take time to go through those references, but get out your concordance and run right through. Chapter 6, 10, and following, they're always referring to unbelievers. You might say then, well, what about believers? What's going to happen to believers? Well, Christ promises here to keep them from this time. He'll keep them from this time. Well, how do you keep someone from a worldwide time of trial? Well, by removing them from it. That's how. Now, this is where the contention comes in. Some people think and believe that keep you from means keep you through or from within. The promise then is one of protection in the midst of the trial from the trial. It's kind of like the prophet Isaiah who said, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The promise would, for them would be, he'll keep you through it. But there's some problems with understanding it that way. First, John could have written that he would keep you in this time or that he would keep you through this time, but he didn't. There's Greek prepositions for that. He chose not to use them. Second, the saints aren't protected with the exception of Revelation 9.4. They're not protected during this time. The sun goes black for them, for example. The authority that God gives to the beast and many other things is going to directly affect them. Saints are going to be martyred, not preserved in the tribulation. That's what we'll find as we go ahead. Third, the promise is that they'll be kept from a time, not simply a trial. I'll keep you from the hour, from a time. You see, Christ's encouraging promise here is not this. Because you have kept my word, I will make you go through the great tribulation. That's not his promise. That's an unnatural reading of the text, and it's not much of an encouragement. Compare that to Christ and his prayer in the garden. Christ prayed, save me from this hour. Do you really think that means, bring me through this, raise me from the dead once I'm crucified? That really is an unnatural way to read the text. It's unnatural to read the promise of 310 as being kept through this hour. The way to be kept from this time is to be removed from this world. You see, if someone is still in the world at this time, he's not kept From that time coming upon the whole inhabited earth. So this is an oblique reference to the rapture. The rapture being the time when Christ will return. He will gather his saints from the earth and he will bring them back to heaven. Of course you look at Revelation 3.10 and you say it doesn't say all that. That's true. Revelation 3.10 promises protection. And then go to verse 11 where Christ promises is coming. I am coming soon. And don't those promises side by side explain what from the hour means? How is he going to keep us from the hour? Well, he's coming to get us. That's why. That's how. When he comes to take us to heaven, we'll be kept from the hour about to come on the whole inhabited earth. And if you wonder, well, did Jesus ever say that he would take us to heaven? Yes, he did. He told his disciples, John 14. He said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus promises, I am coming soon. That's verse 11. And Christ is motivating the church by promising his return. He promised this church in Philadelphia his coming soon. This is the fourth time in the letters that Christ has referred to his coming, but this is the very first time he's speaking about it in a positive way. The first letter to the church of Ephesus, he promised to come, they didn't repent, and remove their lampstand. To Pergamum, he promised to come to confront them because he came with a sword in his mouth. To the church at Sardis, he promises to come suddenly and unexpectedly in judgment as a thief in the night. But his coming to Philadelphia is one that is a source of encouragement. And it's the means by which he's going to keep them from the coming terrible time. When he comes, the good news is that we'll ever be with the Lord. Now, I told you a little bit ago before, but in a couple weeks, I'm going to be on vacation in Florida, staying with my grandmother. And when I was young, seeing Grandma meant a lot of goodies, like Twinkies and Ding Dongs and Ho-Hos. And some of you know about what those are. Those are super good. Now, either she would arrive with a box full of them, or we would arrive and we would run and raid her cupboards of all of those. When I get to Florida in a couple weeks, I'm not going to run and raid my grandmother's cupboards. I'm going to go hug my grandma and be with my grandma. It would be a terrible thing for a person of my age to run in, raid the cupboard, and run to the beach and ignore my grandma. say, why do I bring that up? I bring that up because I want us to examine the promise that Christ is giving here. Christ promises, I am coming soon. So brothers and sisters in the Lord, when you read Christ is coming, do you think much of Christ? Or do you just think, Well, heaven is close, and I'm really excited about going to heaven. And you really don't care much about Jesus Christ. The promise here is Christ's presence. Yes, the book of Revelation, in detail, gives us a picture of what eternity would be like, and for the very reason that we'll desire that. But let's not pass up the the very point of this promise, which is Christ, which is the presence of Christ. He is coming and will be with him. And that is a great encouragement to a small, steadfast church. Let's move on to the fourth promise that he makes for them in, in verse 12. Christ is going to motivate them by promising security. Promising security. He has already promised to them reversal and protection and his coming. Now he promises them security, verse 12. Tells the church he'll make them like a pillar. The Bible says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. So Jesus is promising stability and permanence like a pillar. You see the back of the the slides here. This is the city of Philadelphia, and what still stands there are the pillars. Pillars remain. It's not to say that Jesus is promising to make them into marble columns, but they will be unmoved like pillars. I think of the history of the, the city of Philadelphia, in AD 17, the city suffered an earthquake, and what that meant practically was everyone had to get out of the city so that, so that it could be rebuilt, so everyone had to live outside in the fields and the farms, and then they could return. In the case of the religious scene in Philadelphia, the Christians have been excluded from the people of God, the Jews. They've been pushed out of the synagogue. They're rejected. Because they believe that Jesus is the true Messiah. So it's very, very possible that this church, that this city, knew exactly what it was to be insecure. To feel like they may have to move. Feel like they don't belong. But Christ promises them a permanent place. Never shall he go out of it. So Christ is saying, you will have a permanent place in my kingdom. That is promised security. The last promise Christ gives to them is at the end of verse 12. Christ promises this church to write on them a new name. And that is, that is a motivation to us by promising a status. Verse 12 says, And I will write on him a name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. You, know, you and I do this all the time. We write things on, we rewrite our name on things we own. Just like Andy did in Pixar's Toy Story, he wrote his name on Woody and Buzz Lightyear because those toys belonged to him. So Christ is going to write his name on us. This is his threefold assurance of who we are. We are God's forevers. We are citizens of the new Jerusalem forever. We are Christ's forever. In contrast to the, the church at Sardis that had a name that was false, Christ is going to promise these who overcome a name that's true and lasting. So, Christ is giving this church assurances. He's already told them what they've already enjoyed. They enjoy his love, they enjoy an open door. But now he gives them assurances of what would be the promises of reversal, of protection, of his coming, of security and status. All of those are to motivate the church. But to do what? For what purpose? Obviously, a small church needs encouragement. They need direction. So what does Christ want them to do? And before I answer that question, according to the text, I want you to appreciate that small churches are often given advice of what they ought to do. Small churches are often told, well, obviously because you're so small, you're doing something wrong, and I know what you need to do. Buy my book. Do all I say. That That's There are hundreds of books like that. Everyone's being told to do something better. And if you do these things, if you do what's on my list, your church attendance will just explode. Against that wisdom is the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And we find it in verse 11. Christ says to the church, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have. And that's the only assignment he gives to the beleaguered church. Hold fast. So Christ is encouraging the church. And I would say, given that they're a small church, because it's hard, Christ is steadying that church. It's easy in that situation to waffle, to wonder. And he is steadying them by giving them an assignment. So he cheers the church of Philadelphia by calling for their perseverance. Because Christ expects us to be faithful. That's exactly what He expected of those people. He instructed them to remain faithful, hold fast what you have. Given His soon return, hold fast. The church has been. The church needs to keep doing what it has been doing. It has been keeping Christ's word, and it has not been denying His name. That's what they've been doing, and that's very impressive. It's very impressive. From Christ's standpoint. It's not always impressive to other people who watch. If you simply humbly walk with God despite the opposition, people may wonder why you're doing what you're doing, why you haven't changed your mind yet. But Christ says, that's faithfulness, and that's what I want. I want you to humbly walk with me. And if you overcome, given that to the overcomer, you receive these promises. Verse 12, if you overcome... You will do so by holding fast. In the course of the study, various commentators have explained what it means to overcome, and they often run to First John 5.5. Who is it who overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So many people will say the promise to the overcomers are the people who believe in Jesus. Now, of course, in part that's true, but I would say that this book. Instead of, instead of emphasizing at the forefront faith in Jesus, what it emphasizes is a life of faithfulness. This book calls saints to overcome sin, to hold fast to Christ, no matter what the cost. Because of the miraculous change that God works in his people, that kind of life is true of all God's people. You say, but I don't feel perfect. No, no. The change that God works in his people isn't that he has made them perfect and they'll never sin again. Indeed, we do. We fall and we falter. But God's people arise and follow Jesus, who has conquered sin, death, and the grave. That's Christ's call. He calls for pure perseverance. And he encourages us with that by promising us a crown. He warned the Philadelphian church about losing it. So that's how we know that he's using it as a tool of motivation. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The crown is the reward for faithful service to Christ. And in a warning like this, there's actually the promise of a crown to those who are worthy of it. And Christ is putting it here as an encouragement. Church, remain faithful. There's a crown to be had. So keep on. Christ wants faithfulness some churches i would say they're like the they're like the second servant who received fewer talents than the other servants and i've got to say that has to be discouraging to some degree to see how that works out practically but the point isn't how much you have the point is what you are doing with what you have been given by god despite the smallness of this church their limited power They were plotters. Against the pressure that comes from being small, they were plotters. Against the pressure that comes from forsaking Christ's word, they plotted on. Against the pressure of forsaking Jesus Christ, they were plotters. And in this wonderful letter, Christ comes alongside a small, steadfast church and showers them with his promises. He promised reversal, he promised protection, he promised his coming. He promised security, he promised status, and he steadied them by commanding them with one assignment, hold fast. Don't get fancy, don't try to fit in, don't survey the community to find out what a church ought to be, this is what I want, church, stay faithful. Father, we ask that you would give us that kind of steadiness, that we would have a singularity about us that... We, we just want to be faithful to you. may not be flashy, may not be fancy, may not be what everyone wants, but it's what you want. And Father, we need to be encouraged that we know what you want, you, we know what you reward. We've seen all these assurances of what would be ours if we would overcome. We pray that by your grace we will. We pray that we would overcome any deficiency when it comes to keeping your word when it comes to refusing to deny your name, but to uphold your name, whatever it costs us. We pray we'd be faithful, just like this church of Philadelphia. We pray that would be for your glory, not our own. We pray in Christ's name.